Father, help us to wait on you, to trust that what you have for us is good, uh, even when it feels like uh, your timing is not our timing. Uh, Lord, would you help me to make much of Jesus this morning? Amen. Life is what we make of it. Death we do not know. Christ's acquaintance with him justify him, though. He would trust no stranger, other could betray, just his own endorsement, that sufficeth me. All the other distance he hath traversed first, no new mile remaineth, far as paradise. His sure foot preceding, tender pioneer, base must be the coward dare not venture now. It's a poem by Emily Dickinson. Consider all the distances you've traveled, where you have been and where you're going. Consider the courageous acts, small as they may be, that await you. These forward steps amidst toil and sorrow that point in the direction of hope and of joy. Consider a God who promises to be faithful to His people even when they stumble onto well-worn paths that lead to unrest, even destruction. Uh, We are far too prone to wander, but we do have a God who is patient and kind, who speaks comfort when our words are riddled with fear, doubt, and self-contempt. We do have one who goes before us, this, this tender pioneer as we just read about. This one who sets a table for us. And it's not a table of crumbs and scraps. It's a feast. It is an invitation that informs the way we see the world, the way we see our work, the way we see our relationships, our dreams, and our goals. It's an invitation to be co-heirs with Christ toward the reality of new creation. A reality not reserved for the someday, but for the here and now. One of the values of our church is beauty. And if you go to our website and go to the values tab, this is what it's going to say under beauty. We believe there is a place for beauty and mystery in the church and in our lives, and that such things ultimately point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We were made for glory, to behold it, enjoy it, and long for something more because of it. This is not an endeavor reserved for the artist, but for all of us, because we are all creators in the places to which God has called us. As God's image bearers, we have the glorious responsibility of influencing our community through our imagination and work. Uh, Makoto Fujimura, who's one of my favorite artists, writes this, God does not just mend, repair, and restore. God renews and generates, transcending our expectations of what we desire beyond what we dare to ask or imagine. So when we speak of beauty, it's not just this aesthetic thing, but it's a calling for us as God's people to renew, to generate, to pursue those desires that God's given us, trusting that He's going to do and give to us far more than we can ask or imagine. Well, our passage this morning is Psalm 126. 
which we've, we've sang about many times and which we will later today. But it's a passage of remembrance and renewal. So let's read it together. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The word of the Lord. I want to look at this passage in two ways. The call to remember and the call to rest. First, the call to remember. A friend of mine once said, I don't trust my memories. Because of the trauma in her story, she was suspicious of the things she remembered. There was an uneasiness about these memories that found uh, their way into the present. But here we have a people who not only remember what God has done, but they are reclaiming this joy that they experienced when God delivered them. The passage begins with, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. It's really helpful to understand the context here in the first half of this passage. It's a story of exile, of God's election of His people, of the reality of their sin and rebellion, of God's faithfulness despite their rebellion, in Israel's hope of restoration. And if we looked at the prophet Isaiah, we would see a tension between God's redemptive purposes and Israel's failure to submit to those purposes. And when Isaiah speaks of Israel's impending exile, a captivity in Babylon that results from their sin and rebellion. And though the sinful complacency of God's people is a significant focus of the narrative, the movement of the message ultimately depends upon a God who judges, but He ultimately redeems. Through rebellion, defeat, and doubt, it is God alone who delivers. And while questions of, God, while questions of God's faithfulness and presence abound in the midst of Babylonian exile, God assures them of His covenant faithfulness by choosing them despite their sin. This is about God's patience with His people. This is about God's desire to rescue them. And even amidst the promise of exile, comfort and restoration remain and prevail. I mean, if we look at the opening verses of the, the captivity section of Isaiah, these are the opening verses of, of this passage. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. How gracious is that to a people who have rebelled? Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to her. And while in exile in Jeremiah 29, a familiar passage to many of you, the Lord says this, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. 
And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I will restore your fortunes. That should sound familiar. That's what we just read in Psalm 126. So what are the people celebrating here in in Psalm 126? They're celebrating their rescue. They're celebrating their deliverance. That their fortunes are being restored. Their movement from captivity to promise. But there's another dynamic to this remembrance. This remembering. If you look down a little further, it says, Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The work of Yahweh is so significant that the nations around them cannot help but notice. It reminds us of the song of Moses following Israel passing through the Red Sea, which said that the nations saw it and they trembled. It reminds us of when in Joshua, Rahab recounts the mighty works of God to deliver Israel from the hand of Egypt. It reminds us of the story in Ezra when the community began to rebuild the temple and people sang and shouted and testified and praised Yahweh and wept with joy and shouted for joy in such a way that the noise could be heard from miles away. And this forms a marked contrast to this scornful question we often see in Scripture. Where is your God? Furthermore, a word that I never use, furthermore... Dramatically, the worshipers conclude this recollection by confirming what the nation said. As if they had not quite realized the significance of Yahweh's action until they heard it on the nation's lips. That is sometimes how things work. When someone else formulates what has happened to us, we see it more clearly ourselves. Remembering is formative. And oftentimes, we need others to help us to remember. I've become well acquainted with with my spiritual forgetfulness. First, for me, there's there's a, a spiritual amnesia where I just completely detach from the reality of God's work in my life. It's almost this willing choice to just say, nope, I'm going to forget. I don't remember. And then there's a spiritual cynicism where I choose to forget what God has done. I ignore it. I'm, un, I'm unwilling to apply it to the now. I feel this weight of despair pressing down, and my quick response is that God has grown tired of me. That His patience has run dry, and His disappointment is now the precedent from which He writes my story. As if my permanent home now is captivity. But it's clear in this passage that that is not God's posture toward His people. It's not God's posture toward me, and it's not His posture toward you. What God, God, <clears throat> what God calls us to is rest. And how we remember informs how we rest. So let's look at rest. Beginning in verse 4, it says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like water courses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. Their remembrance is foundational to their trust in God restoring their fortunes again. 
But notice the reality of tears and of weeping and of toil. It's still there remains a faithfulness to move through those things to experience this great reversal from tears to shouts of joy. God has not grown tired of you, but has promised a bounty in the dry and lifeless Negev. He sees your tears and has set wide spaces in which you will experience joy. And no matter how mundane it is, He sees your work. Not merely as toil, but as a beautiful participation in the new. Uh, Sho Baraka, who may be familiar to some, uh, he just came out with a book called He Saw That It Was Good, a book about beauty and creativity. And in the book, he talks extensively about the resistance and perseverance and defiant joy in early black history, early black creativity. And in speaking about the deeply rooted plantation theology of the Negro spiritual, he writes, What does this have to do with the old true story of God's image in our creative call? Everything. Because in the pressure, injustice, and profound beauty of this journey from the plantation, we see the incredible promise of people who are reclaiming their God-given calling against all odds and reimagining life in a broken world. These old spirituals were more than a distraction to pass the time. These songs were saturated with coded language to encourage, to instruct, and even to guide toward freedom. We have a lot to learn from this. What it means for us to steward our pain, to steward our weakness in such a way where we are reimagining life in a broken world. Using the imaginations that God has given us. And now perhaps it's, it's strange to speak of rest when you see things like tears and weeping and toil. But let's return to the poem from the beginning that I started with. Speaking of Christ, Emily Dickinson writes, All the other distance he hath traversed first, no new mile remaineth, far as paradise, his sure foot preceding, tender pioneer. Ultimately, our rest is in a person. The work of Jesus to bring us out of death, idolatry, and spiritual exile. In Him is our deliverance. He traveled the distance to the cross to deliver us from death, to invite us into this wonderful exchange from death to life. John Calvin, the other JC, uh, talks about the benefits we have in Christ. Uh, and he calls it this wonderful exchange. That in Jesus, because of God's goodness, we are made sons and daughters of God. That because of Jesus, we have a place prepared for us in the new heavens and new earth. Because of Jesus, accepting our weakness, He has strengthened us by His power. Because of Jesus, receiving our poverty unto Himself, He has transferred His wealth to us. And taking the weight of our sin which oppressed us, which oppresses us, He has clothed us 
in righteousness. And I want to remind you that these psalms, all 150 of them, are, they're songs that were sung by God's people. And Psalm 126 is part of a collection of psalms called Psalms of Ascent. And these were songs that the pilgrims sang on their way to Jerusalem. Shouting, singing, playing instruments. And as we consider our pilgrimage, our sojourning through life, who leads our procession? Christ, this tender pioneer who traveled the distance we could not. And he's a tender pioneer. He's not a harsh pioneer. He's not an angry pioneer. He is our worship leader, teaching us his song in the language of reclaimed joy and reclaimed hope. He is the one who creates a new humanity in his church, us. So what do we do with all this? Well, first, very simply, sing. Sing, brothers and sisters. When we gather, we are singing songs of remembrance. We are singing songs of rest. I heard a story many years ago about a guy who took his friend who wasn't a Christian to a Christian conference. It's a bad idea probably, but um, just kidding. Am I? Um, and you know, after the conference, uh, they were driving home and the man just said, you know, what did you think of the conference? And he said, oh, you know, it was fine, but to hear those people sing. The thing that stood out to him was God's people singing. And I think it's easy for us to underestimate the power, the formative power of song when we gather as God's people. So continue to come and lift up your voice. I don't care if you think you're, you have a bad voice. Sing. Weep. Weep. God has given you more space than you, than you know to weep, to cry out to Him. And we see in this passage that, that weeping brings shouts of joy. We can't, we can't go around that. Lamentation forms us. It strengthens us. It strengthens our faith. Sing. Weep. Work. Work because you know that a beautiful God has given you a glorious imagination to work not just for your self-gratification, but for His purposes. For the sake of beauty in your own life and for the sake of beauty in our city. Sing. Weep. Work. Create. Now, as I said earlier on, I think we all are called to create but I do think that artists have a very unique ability to create. And I want to speak to the artists for a minute. Artists, we need you to create with honesty and extravagance. Reminding us that beauty is not about utility, but about God, but about giving us a picture of who God is and His redemptive story of which we are a part. You know, if we look at Genesis 2... There's, there's a, a passage where it talks about uh, in, in the Garden of Eden that there, there was gold, there was uh, delium, and onyx stone. Three things that they're, they're somewhat useless 
if you think about it. But there's something beautiful about them. And here's the thing about those, those three minerals is that you have to do the hard work of digging down and finding them. They're not just sitting out. So artists, we need you to do that hard work. It's hard work to dig and to uncover hope in the midst of the world we live in. But you're able to give language to things that oftentimes we just can't. And we need you. Continue to do that hard work to uncover the gold. Sing, weep, work, create. When we are weary, it is hard to remember. When we are anxious, it's hard to rest. But this invitation for us is never rescinded. Christ has for us an easy yoke and a light burden which we can joyfully bear as we bring forth beauty, not simply for our sake, but for the sake of the world. My friends, though you are weeping, there will be shouts of joy. Let me pray. God, would you be gracious to us to help us remember, to help us rest? Lord, give us courage in the things before us. Would you redeem our imaginations, Lord? Would you renew them today that we would go out and, and see them actively used? Oh, Lord, be good to us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in him is our rest. Oh Lord, would you bring us back to that place where we need you, where our dependence breeds joy and rest. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.